the strength and conditioning industry would be better if it was called the movement strength and conditioning mm. industry. And I think that's because it should be relatively in that order. Strength and conditioning, just those two words, the connotation alone means measurable qualities. And yes, your strength, however you choose to measure that, and your conditioning, however you choose to measure that, are certainly important components of somebody's fitness or performance potential. But ultimately, your ability to move well is the thing that matters most. That was Clifton Harsky, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're in the world of sports performance, you've probably heard of jump testing mats. These mats use hang time to measure total jump height or contact time to measure quickness abilities off of the ground. The best jump mat that I've come across also happens to be a sponsor of this show, which is the Plyo Mat. The Plyo Mat is not only accurate, easy to use, and affordable, but it also allows you to string multiple mats together to add an extra dynamic to plyometric testing and training. To check out the Plyo Mat, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T dot net. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is an online software for coaches and trainers, and I've continued to hear great things about the Team Builder platform. If you're looking for either an in-house training portal for your training groups or an online training hub, be sure to check out the Team Builder training software. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here, and I'm excited to bring on the show today our guest Clifton Harsky. Cliff has an extensive human performance and movement education background. He's taken pretty much every major certification that you could get if you're in the world of personal training or strength and conditioning. Uh, as a teacher, he's led over 450 workshops and certifications since 2011. I feel like that has to be some sort of record. Currently, he is the COO for the Pain-Free Performance Specialist Certification, while he has also developed and ran the Functional Training Kettlebell Training Certification. Clifton is a guy who has this vast movement and physical training literacy and on the podcast today, he'll be uh, discussing how do we integrate athleticism and adaptability into our general physical programs. So within that, we'll talk about all elements of athleticism and movement, movement variability, rotational work and kettlebell training concepts, uh, rhythmic work and oscillatory concepts, this and much more on the podcast today. Whether you work with athletes or general population individuals or a bit of both, there's a lot here in context of building athleticism, robust movers, and moving forward in a meaningful way in the training program. I'm excited to get this podcast going for you guys, so let's get here to episode 379 with Clifton Harsky. So Clifton, man, I saw uh, you're 41 and dunking pretty well still. Very impressive. What? Tell me a little bit about this recent dunk journey or how long have you been like dunking on your birthday? Kind of curious about that aspect of your training. That really started probably six or seven years ago where I had had a couple of injuries in 2011, 2012. And in those years of traveling and teaching certifications, I wasn't making my way into gymnasiums. And obviously, you know, one of the, the surgeries, jumping off a roof, hardcore parkour, I bruised the head of my femur, got a pothole, the articular cartilage died, flaked off, had to vacuum it out. That actually interrupts jumping and dunking a little bit, um, mm. as you could probably guess. And once I was able to kind of push through that bone bruise and, and pain, it was like, I want to be able to dunk on my birthday every year. And the, the real impetus was people celebrating 
Vince Carter dunking when he was 40 something. And I was like, this isn't impressive. He's six, seven and like a human specimen. What's impressive is a goofy, dorky white guy like myself with an injury history still being able to dunk. And so that's just been my goal each year. Can I still dunk? And how long will I be able to do this as a six, one, exactly eight foot reach doofus? And, uh, that's, that's what I train for. I need to do a better job of training for it the whole year and not shoving a year's worth of training into two months. <laughs> so there's there's a skill to that, though. I mean, I think you're jumping a little higher at 41 than you were at 40, weren't you? I definitely am. The previous year, I had my left knee. So my right knee is a surgical knee. My left knee has 11 mil meniscal tear. Just, you know, 27 years of basketball and parkour and different things. Stuff happens. And it had been a little pissy the, the previous year. Um, I moved from California to St. Louis. Training was just interrupted a little bit with that and did not have the power that that I had hoped for. For this year, the whole year of training was really good. And it peaked two months beforehand. I was barely able to dunk and was like, all right, so I got two months. I got nine weeks basically here to turn it on. What do I need? The things that I needed specifically was practicing dunking because the the skill of dunking, the the gather, the approach, the plant with the basketball is so much different than going up for a box jump or a max effort broad jump or anything that we do gym-wise. Uh, they all have a, some carryover, of course, but the actual ability to dunk, like you, you mentioned it when we were just briefly talking, you would kick my ass in any high jump or probably any track and field style jump because you've got that background. I, I don't have that background necessarily. So I... My, my game plan was this. Uh, anyone wants to steal it. Once a week, I practice dunking on a nine foot 10 hoop for the skill acquisition of basketball dunking. And I would use small balls and big balls. And then twice a week, I would do gym jumping with different approaches. Nothing with flat foot because you don't do that dunking a basketball unless you're Shaq. So everything was approached from different angles, different approaches, different takeoffs, because in a game, which I didn't play, but in a game, you have all these different approaches. So you know, I, I'm a big believer that the peak expression of what we do is being adaptable and take the qualities we develop and apply them in novel ways really quickly. And so I practiced random jumps. And the one thing I was missing that I, I steer clear of is I was not doing any really dedicated, heavy strength training. And there's a specific exercise piece of equipment, the squat rack that you lean into facing the squat rack at lifetime that I absolutely love because I'm able to put primarily my ball pressure through the ball of the feet, not the heels, because jumping is probably through ball of the feet, not your damn heels. I actually set slightly internally rotated or pigeon toed and actually knock me with a relatively fast eccentric. So it squishes me down just like I'm trying to you know, collapse and pressurize almost, and then explode out of it. And so I just did that once a week. And over eight weeks, um, the goal was to lose some weight and get down to like 190, but I pumped my training up. So I actually mm. ate a lot, a lot of ice cream and candy and uh, put on a few pounds, got leaner, put on a few pounds and, and jumped higher. It was like the holy grail. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure too, like with the strength piece, I'm sure you were doing a lot of other general stuff. I mean, I see you doing a lot of kettlebell type stuff and I'm sure we'll get into what some of the more general training you have looks like, but in terms of, uh, so like the rest of the week, I'm sure was a lot more just fitness capacity, basic human movement qualities, things like that. Absolutely. Um, 
I, I was splitting it up right now. I'm splitting up two upper body dominant days and two lower body dominant days. And then one screw around day, mm-hmm. play around, do whatever. The upper body days are primarily with the kettlebell, which means there's still additional low level elastic properties with swinging and stepping that I'm doing with the kettlebells. Um, and then the two upper body, the two lower body days, you know, it's BFR. BFR is yeah. like mo- monumentally important to me for the last three years. If I do it two days a week, my knees play nice. Mm. If I don't, and at this point, I don't know if it's just in my head or what, but I would highly suggest people with with achy knees get some BFR cuffs and use them in your warm ups. Hit the leg curl machine, leg extension, mm-hmm. calf raise, and watch your knees play nicer. Yeah, I've had um, ever since I've had Chris Gaviglio on, and even before uh, the valve airbands, using those over the last couple of years. I'm a fan, man. I, I'm a huge fan. I, I'm a. I can't say enough good things about BFR. So it doesn't surprise me at all that that was a big part of uh, your preparation there. I was gonna say too. You know, you've done, and I was thinking about asking you this before the dunk question, but like, I don't know how many certs you. Yeah, you, you have a lot of certifications, and clearly you've done a lot of learning of different systems. And I heard someone saying this recently. It's like along the lines of Ido Portal, but like the more movement practices you learn you it's like language like if you know one language it's hard to learn the second but if you know five or six it's easier to learn that next language and it would strike me that you have all these different movement certifications it just is intuitive hey i'm not just going to do the same dunk every time i'm going to do a big ball a small ball and when you do your other day it's just all about the variability the same way that you would get in sport or things like that and so i can see that like intuitive element of you from all the different movement practices you've had like i'm sure it's almost um i don't think we think about it that way a lot because i think we often think about all right i'm gonna go to the certification they're gonna teach me xyz i'm gonna do xyz when in reality in so many ways i think the goal of all these things is to be able to intuitively solve these problems yourself with the athlete or individual who is in front of you and it 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 seems um i know i'm just curious what your thoughts on are about that or on that in light of all the practices you've learned and the certs you've gone through yeah, we actually in in one of the, my cert that I teach now, um, functional kettlebell training. There's a there's a page in the manual that says most certifications are teaching you a math problem. They're teaching you one way to do things. So two plus two is four. My three year old knows that two plus two is four, but he doesn't know math. I want him to know like how to do actual math. And so the more things that you learn, whether that be education. Or the more physical things that you practice, that's you learning math. And now you can solve more problems instead of memorizing one way to do things. And so regularly, I get fitness professionals that come and take these courses. And they they have memorized one equation and they have no other movement options. And so for me, that sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, okay, if you're getting paid for that one thing, congratulations. I suppose that makes a lot of sense. But in any other standpoint it doesn't make sense to me personally i think that you would want to be better at more things or at least have the ability to figure it out relatively quickly yeah it's definitely an important part and I'm, it's good that you mentioned that i think it's very easy for people to go to a certification and they come back with like three drills it's almost like this principle it's like the come back with three drills principle <laughs> and then those sit in the program for like i don't know six months, maybe two months, you know, maybe a year, but inevitably they're probably going to kind of fade away and maybe one was kept, you know, or something like that. But I think that it's not often 
thought about it's because we have this huge baseline in fitness or athletic performance, physical preparation of all these different ways of thinking. But there's a I think there's a lot less out there on how do we start intuitively working with this? How do we combine this for the thing that's in front of us? That's why I appreciated your you talking about how your dunk program so much, because a lot of times people would be like, all right, well, I got this. I got my squat here. I did this kettlebell exercise. I did this uh, specific jump exercise and I could just see like there's some variability. There is some more art and there's more of that nuance with the actual jumping that fits with motor learning and how you learn skills and things like that. So uh, I could definitely see that um, coming out with that. And yes, yeah, it's, it's um, I definitely like to get a little bit more into as well. Some of the major schools of thought you've been through. I mean, I'm sure it's been just about all of them. You know, I, uh, I find the movement piece, like the general movement or the MoveNat thing interesting. I've never been through MoveNat, um, but like anywhere from human movement to kettlebells to powerlifting, like this huge spectrum. I- I'm curious what some of the main, like like the big pillars you've learned across. I probably should have put this in the questions, but I, <laughs> I just... Oh, no worries. But some of the big pillars across all these different movement certifications you've done, like what are the things that really stick with you? So I've, I've said before... Uh, I don't know, no one would know this because nobody knows who the hell I am, but the strength and conditioning industry would be better if it was called the movement strength and conditioning Mm -hmm. industry. And I think that's because it should be relatively in that order. Um, The strength and conditioning, just those two words, the connotation alone means measurable qualities. And yes, your strength, however you choose to measure that, and your conditioning, however you choose to measure that, are certainly important components of somebody's fitness or performance potential but ultimately your ability to move well is the thing that matters most and i think it's important to give my definition of what move well means because it was actually dobbs who who put it out there at one point he's like there's no good definition for move well i was like that's a good point there's not for me it means can you do things on purpose that's it because how your squat or jump approach looks might be different than mine, but if the outcome is successful and neither of us are getting hurt from it, then who's to say whose is better, right? Like there are different strategies from different injury histories, different movement um, backgrounds, different limb lengths, et cetera. Of course, they're going to look different, but if the outcome is what we're measuring success with and you did it on purpose, then I'm good with it. And so to that SNC, the big pillars are, I want people to have movement options. I want them to be decide that they perform their squat hingy, that they perform it more squatty, that they do their kettlebell swing to the side. And there's not these arbitrary standards of what exactly is the thing that you're trying to do. The only time those make sense to me is if that's the rules of the competition that you're in. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's it's task driven. So doing things on purpose, another big pillar is the strength pillar. I do think that, you know, ultimately most people need to be stronger. And at the same time, out the other side of my mouth, I think that people um, in, in the SNC community specifically probably overvalue the peak strength that would be put out unless you are a peak strength athlete. And what I mean there is like, I could, maybe I could push my trap bar deadlift or barbell deadlift to 600 pounds. But when I start taking from a relatively easy 500, 550, whatever I've done in the past, the added time and effort it would have taken me to add another 50 pounds would have to come at the expense of me doing other things. And what is that opportunity cost? To me, when my measurement has always been, how do I feel on the basketball court, tennis court, random acts of of stuff? Mm -hmm. 
well, then that opportunity cost was too great. And I think if you're training athletes that are general movers, like any field sport, then there's probably an opportunity cost. And rather than chasing an additional 20 pounds on your barbell deadlift, why don't you practice your Zercher deadlift or your Peter, your Jefferson deadlift or your 1.5 stance deadlift? Like I think some people call that quitting and moving the goalposts. I'm like, no, that's developing a more robust strength circle instead of specializing in something that doesn't actually end up ultimately having super, super high carryover. So I've almost that ends with myself. I know when I say it, I'm like, get stronger. But once you run into a, a little barrier, like maybe get stronger somewhere else and revisit it later. Um, because ultimately that's not the, that's not the thing of you as a human athlete or a sports specific athlete. So big pillars were do things on purpose, have ability to do things on purpose. That's my movement definition. Be strong enough, right? I know that Kevin Durant gets thrown out as an example. I do think if Kevin Durant got stronger, he could be even better, but it doesn't mean like focus on it forever. And then conditioning, conditioning takes care of itself. Like be fit, be fit enough to do whatever the sport is that you're doing. I don't, I don't know what else to say there, um, but those would be, those would be uh, pretty, pretty monumentally really important, I think, as my big pillars. And yeah, big pillars. Yeah, I think it is. I, I like that definition. Going back to what you said, uh, movement, strength, and conditioning. I know in the collegiate realm or university realm, a lot of strength and conditioning names is getting rebranded. It's like athletic performance or something like that. But yeah. it's even that is, I mean, that's a little broad, which is probably good. But if you do think of it, athletic performance itself is those three things you said. It is movement, strength, and then the conditioning piece. But I think it is interesting because if you just call yourself a movement coach, now it's like super esoteric. It's like, well, well yeah. I have no idea. It's like this blob. Like, what are you even doing? <laughs> like, it's like you just kind of almost get a picture of like someone just kind of moving around in waves and you have no idea what's going on and it's impossible to quantify. And I do think that is the interesting piece because like, I do think that for the ability to coach movement quality is, is an interesting one for me. Like you mentioned, like there's different strategies, you dunked it, it didn't hurt and you used your own strategy. I think it, it's with the movement, I think the ability to see different strategies is important. One of the things I'm always drawn to is too, is like, how do you move? Like, what's the expression on your face? Is it like heavy, light? Is it easy? Is it, are you straining? Like, like some like the Feldenkrais ideas, even I, I remember I went to like a Feldenkrais practitioner once who's like fixing my posture by just like tapping my back. I was like, oh, this does feel better. But after that, I was at a high jump practice and I was watching kids jump over the bar and half of them just looked like they were like in pain. And I was like, what is going on upstairs that you're feeling like you're in pain? In pain? I'm like, well, that's where maybe the movement piece comes in. But to start, you have to like start, you at least have to start in some like box, you know, before it gets more complex. Anyways, I, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I'm curious. I guess I would ask you, I'd ask you to expand a little bit about, you know, you, you equate movement with doing things on purpose. Um, maybe tell me a little bit about what that looks like for someone, uh, just to, uh, I, I guess, expand that out in a way that I think people can understand a little bit better is expand what that would mean for like, like a gen pop person who doesn't have a sport yep. they're playing versus an athlete who is playing a sport. And now what does that look like for each of those two? How do you approach movement, the, the movement part of the movement SNC for gen pop versus someone who already is doing a sport? Sure. So the, the do things on purpose, uh, a, a good example, I guess, would be a lateral lunge, right? So if, if we're using a lateral lunge, that's a great general fitness drill. And it would also probably be pretty useful for most sport athletes as well. And when you look at how somebody does a lateral lunge, oftentimes it's going to be co coached with a stepping leg 
toe turned out, knee following the second and third toe, right? So it looks very much like a traditional squat. But if we do, if we choose to do it with our knees and toes pointing forward, almost feeling like it's pigeon toed, that's going to hit our muscles differently. And so what I mean is if I say, I want you to do it like this, toes forward, knees forward, shift your hip over, which basically is moving your pelvis over that femur, giving you more length on the right hip, if I was stepping right. Um, and they cannot change their foot position from externally rotated pointing out. That's the only strategy they have available to them. To me, that's not moving mm. well. Instead, it's it's like, how quickly can you change the execution of what you're doing? And ultimately, all that happens when we change execution is we're selecting what muscles, what tissues are being stressed differently. And if we are able to do that from a fitness standpoint, so a gen pop, I'm trying to drive specific overload to them to target certain tissues, whether that because they, they want hypertrophy there, they want strength there, they need more resilience there if I'm going eccentric or whatever the hell we want to say. But that that just means doing it on purpose, right? And the, my example is in the kettlebell community is there's so the orthodox kettlebell group, um, whatever you want to define that as say there's one way to do this and this is how you do it. And unfortunately, those folks, when they come see me, have very hard times changing how they do things. They've mm -hmm. developed, is it the motor engram, right? Something like that. They've dug that trench of how they do the thing so deep that they've actually reduced their options for how they can execute, how they can move. From a rehab standpoint, and I'm not a rehab professional, but from a rehab standpoint, we want our clients with back injuries to have more options and abilities mm -hmm. to pick something up off the floor. The less options you have, the more problems you will have in living day to day or performing your sport. So if we go all the way to the sport, you know, I don't train athletes. So I'm very open about the fact that I don't train high level athletes, right? My, my bias, my, uh, experience is all around gen pop that want to feel good, look good, maybe be a weekend warrior. And I do attract, you know, fitness pros that are ex athletes that want to still feel athletic. But I do think it's important that we acknowledge what our experience is because that always mm -hmm. will shape how we look at things. So when I speak to at training athletes specifically, that's more hypothetical and conversations that I have with people, but being a wannabe athlete, at least, I think, and you used the term earlier, intuitive. I think athletes, by and large, have some idea of what makes them feel better. And it's our job as coaches to be like, no, you have a huge hole here. Certainly, we need to address this. But I also want what you like to do and feel good doing to be a big part of your program, because I imagine that that is going to make them feel a whole hell of a lot better in executing whatever their sport is. So for them in their lateral lunge, I might have them do it a certain way if I'm if I've seen some sort of weakness, a perceived weakness, but then I'm like, hey, this next set, do it however you want to. Um, and that's a pretty arbitrary, like quality developing drill, lateral lunge, not a skill that's going to give them um a better high jump, right? If it's a high jump, I wouldn't coach them anyway. I'd be sending you or somebody that has a technique for that. That's a whole different thing than just general fitness. Yeah, with the movement options, it's, it is interesting because I do, I think if you look at just strength and conditioning as opposed to the, with the extra M tacked on, a lot of times it does, whether it's training for athletes or not, a lot of times just the strength piece, it's, it's do it this way, 
point your knees this way, point your toes this way. There's a video going around. It was like someone coaching a squat. Someone's like, oh, this is a really good squat coaching. And the guy's giving this guy a minute of cues like or something. I mean, literally, first, how could you even remember them all? And two, if you move like that, you're actually reducing your actual body's ability to move. It's like you know, the empty cup type principle. It's like this guy's, this athlete's cup, the coach just basically poured the water all the way to the top and then some. And now the athlete has no room to fill in any of the gaps on their own, like to actually learn and fill it in the way they want to. And I was thinking about, um, you know, something you were saying with the lateral lunge got me thinking, someone posted, it was Jordan Love, the Packers uh, quarterback. uh, And he had this pass that he did where he like slid basically into a lateral lunge. And then his legs like did this like 90-90 thing, like one leg internally rotating like crazy one. It looked like he was doing like a like a half like splits, half like 90-90 IRER drill I, 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 this is really, it's really hard for me to describe this on audio. Um, but I mean, it was like crazy how many different directions his legs went and he still fired off some pass. I think he might've just been throwing it away, but I was like, one, you would look at that and be like, how did that guy not tear his knee? Well, he's adaptable. He's athletic. He can get in these. It's almost like that shows what, what is it? What is one thing that helps athletes not get hurt? It's dynamic variability. It's the ability in space to move your body in a way that actually won't overstress you. You have the options to get there. If you don't have the options, you're kind of screwed as soon as you get in a bad position, you know, but if you have them and that's great. And so, uh, it reminded me a little bit about, I had a podcast with um, Michael Zwiefel and Tyler Yerby and they have exercise setups where they, they do the repetition without repetition method where every rep's different. Like it's not all their sets, but like maybe they warm up with, Hey, do a rep without rep squat, do a rep without rep lateral lunge. Like, I do that a lot with my warm-ups for athletes. Like, all right, you're going to do different, these different stances for hex bar, and then we'll do our main sets or things like that. And so, yeah, it's, um, it is interesting thinking. And maybe it's almost like they're trying to define what is the movement piece. Well, that's, I think, definitely part of it, you know, but a lot of people, it's, if it's just S and C, it's, it's, it's just, it does become kind of very rigid organically, I think, where the movement gives life to I'm making motions with my hands right now. <laughs> you can't see. It like gives life to that SNC because it allows you to intuitively tweak it to help it be more athletic or just movement rich. You know, if it's gen pop, movement rich or whatever the term is, you know? Well, and, and with the SNC crowd, I, I understand why they get caught up, why, why fitness trainers get caught up in training specific form because specific setups with the body will set us up for a combination of the muscular system and the structural system to be in a better position to handle more load. And if our measurement of success is always Mm -hmm. more load, then it makes sense to set up in a certain way. Um, However, if our measure of success is, can I accomplish this task from different positions and reflexively then that doesn't make sense because only training that one way ultimately reduces our potential for how we can solve varying um, situations, whether it be on a field of sport, tag with my kid, uh, dodgeball on the trampoline where I'm absolutely dominating the (laughs) six-year-old or, or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, that was one of the things uh, from MoveNet, which was, this idea and i and, and you know rightly or wrongly the idea that your gym performance has very be- very little bearing on what your practical performance in life is now that's always a little bit funny like you mentioned the the word esoteric with the movement culture and i always called it romantic mm-hmm. where it's like oh yeah it's a really nice like thought process but you know also 
I get it. You can't, you do a lot of pull-ups, but you can't pull yourself up on this branch. But Mm -hmm. other than coming to this getaway, you're never going to be climbing up on a branch. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's actually not a good measure of practical strength to begin with. Um, So it's, it's the movement culture is at this weird intersection of, yes, it's still fitness, but also this is just the stuff that we like to do. Uh, It's no different than dance. It's no different than playing pickleball. It's no different than whatever thing you enjoy. It's a hobby. And to to put it up on this pedestal is better than or more meaningful than than a bench press or anything else. It's just silly to me. I've always found it fairly um, comical, corny, (laughs) to be honest. Yeah, I I could definitely see that. And it is true. It is. I mean, it is interesting. One of my favorite workouts that I do this, this is like my often, this is like my variability day is gosh, I talk about this all the time, but I'll just say this is a different version of this that I did the other day. That was kind of fun. That's like very human is running in a Creek with barefoot shoes, different stones and things to jump over and step on. And then I would go up to a field and just do a bunch of crawls and kind of locomotive crawl type stuff. And, and then go back and do more stuff in the Creek and then do more stuff in the field. And I'm like, man, that whatever, being like a functional human feels like this is pretty good, you know, but it is also that's such a rare way of training and you wouldn't necessarily do that in life very often in our modern life. But it does, you know, it does feel good to to have that piece fundamentally there um, in the training equation. Yeah, it's it is. I would argue. I mean, I could argue. I shouldn't say I would argue. I could argue. You could argue for goddamn anything at this point. Um, but the ability to get out one hands on real earth for however weird we want to get about electromagnetic Mm -hmm. fields and negative ions and all this other stuff. Yeah. I think there's something there, right? Like we're not meant to be in artificial light and concrete and all this stuff all the damn time. So getting out in earth, I think is important. So if we have the opportunity to do so, do so then just, you know, you run into that, that, that Creek bed with the rocks it's so engaging. It's so mentally engaging. It builds in the variability that, yes. that you are a fan of, that I'm a big fan of, that I think is probably important for everybody to have some exposure to. You can't zone out. And in as such, you get into the flow state or the meditative state when you have to be connected and doing something. Um, I'll make an analogy. Like That's why I like moving around a kettlebell, dancing with the kettlebell is what mm-hmm. I call it. Like I, That's to make fun of myself, dancing with the kettlebell. But when you're swinging this bell around, it could be a mace bell, it could be a club bell, mm-hmm. it could be the landmine when people are jumping back and forth. In effect, it doesn't move the same every single time. So you're always reacting to this moving load and it creates a similar engagement level to yes. running through the creek bed. That's a lot different than when you're trying to minimize the amount of movement that something has, I actually want to maximize it. I want to have it be something that I'm, that I'm interacting with. You know, to me, that's a big piece of athleticism. Um, oftentimes athleticism gets defined by the qualities that are shown power, strength, conditioning, agility. That's all great, but I'm more interested in like reflexivity, problem solving, yeah. explorative, adaptive. Uh, the, I, an example, Devin Hester re- returning kickoffs while trying to be murdered by 11 giants that are also freak athletes is way more impressive to me from an athletic standpoint than Usain Bolt breaking the world record. Usain Bolt breaking the world record is unbelievable. That is one quality. He really puts out power fast. Devin Hester has to do that and dodge and change direction and hold the ball so it changes his arm dynamics, has to manage to watch his other 10 players, the other 11 people stay in bounds, 
Like it's there's more things to manage, uh, and and to me that is more athletic. Yeah, the reflex value. It's like you know, if you had this movement category and you listed the things that went in, I do think reflex value would be a piece in there. And I, mm-hmm. it's I think it's the same reason too. Like when I if I do like squat cleans, Olympic lifting, and I'm catching the bar in a squat, I recover better from that. I know it's more just concentric. There is also an eccentric isometric catch, so there is a little bit of that. But by and large, I will recover much faster and better doing a squat clean workout, a hang squat, a squat clean workout than a squat workout. And I think it's for the same reason. Every catch is a little more variability. There's something in space. You reflexively get under the bar. And it's, um, it is, there is a little bit of that repetition without repetition, like the hammer striking the anvil uh, with the Bernstein equation where it comes back a little differently every time. And I do think, you know, I was thinking too, and that's a good point you said, like if your measure is heavyweights, there, do, there does need to be more coaching. Like, you don't want to just let kids, like teenagers, especially like high school, like teenagers, hey, teenagers, go into these heavyweights and just figure, you know, self-organize. That'll be a really good yeah. idea. But um, at the same time, it does, it is interesting because I do think as athletes get to higher levels, like I'm sure uh, that video I referenced where the coach was giving all these instructions, I'm sure that is a very one rep max driven program where there may, I don't, I'm not in the program, but there may be an emphasis on the general strength in that specific pattern beyond where it's helpful anymore you know i would say there's probably like some sort of relationship between how much singular things are coached up extensively and how far they're taken beyond their direct usefulness if someone wanted to some you know someone trying to do their thesis research in sports psychology or motor learning or coaching or something wants to put that together but uh yeah it was interesting to think about that but then sorry i was just kind of i just wanted to address that but then i i just love the reflex value thing and the the rhythm, I, I see you doing like the, the kettlebell dancing stuff. Would you say that the rhythm actually adds to the variability reflex value of it? Like whatever you're doing, like that's an enhancer of that to help you do more. Sure, there's a lot of reasons, right? But um, with that piece so, of it. Anything rhythmic, I like. Uh, I think that it, and, and I'm not actually doing it on purpose. It's funny, when I saw your question, I was like, oh, that's a good point. Like I don't actually think of building rhythm into workouts. It's just something that ends up coming in almost organically. I think it's one of the reasons that people will enjoy rowing cycling uh spin classes even running because you get in this rhythmic cyclic thing Mm -hmm. and you just kind of ride that wave and so with with certain drills whether it be speed skaters back and forth or different jumping drills or swinging with the kettlebell on your back and forth you're coiling you're uncoiling you're rotating you're unrotating um developing that that flow that rhythm feeling i think feels good to us i think there's something to you know wise dance universally a part of every culture it's because moving in a dance like way feels good and oh i'm not the biggest my wife will tell you (laughs) she'll be upset that i don't go dance with her i'm not the big dance guy but kind of dance in the gym a lot Mm -hmm. so um, i think that involving some sort of rhythmic practice makes a ton of sense yeah On the level of supplements, Lost Empire Herbs has been my go-to for the last five years. As someone who's constantly observing nature in motion to help me understand movement better, so too do I draw from nature in my supplementation regime. If you want to check out some of my favorite supplements for energy, strength, and enhancing the total impact of your training regimen, uh, things such as Shiliagit, which has been well-recommended by many strength coaches, the Phoenix Formula, which was my original Lost Empire Herbs supplement that really made me a believer in the power of herbalism, things like pine pollen, mushroom tinctures, and more, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. 
There you can use the code JOEL15, that's J-O-E-L-1-5, for 15% off your order. Definitely check out Lost Empire Herbs. They're an awesome company and will really help that total aspect of your performance training process. Yeah, I just think that fits too with the timing piece. I think so often, it's funny, even you mentioned Usain Bolt too. I did want to mention with him compared to others. And I, I do agree in the sense of like, it is, there's a lot more movement challenge that goes on evading, sprinting and evading and doing all these things. But the thing I like about watching Bolt, and you mentioned it with Reflex, he is so reflexive in how he runs and warms up and operates. If you watch him, where other, a lot of other, not all, but a lot of other sprinters are very like, kind of like the squat. They're doing all the things their coach told them to do. They're kind of putting their hand here and they're, they're going to the positions. Whereas all, if you watch Bull, all his movements, they're like a lot of skips and gallops. Like he skips in all his accelerations. His arm kind of bounces off the backside and bounces back. And it's very bounce and reflex operative. Which I just think is so, now I don't know if I, I I don't think that every single athlete should warm up exactly like that because I think there's different some athletes want a little bit more compression and power and some athletes want more looseness and lightness but I do think that general idea just if you're even doing one thing you know it, having that piece there you can tell he's got this internal rhythm this internal clock um, that that probably comes with doing one thing over and over again and just having that art to it you know I'm sure probably like Philbo. He's always a bad example for me to use because he's such a good athlete. Like when you watch him on the basketball court dunk or soccer field, yeah. he's, he's awesome there. He's, he's a phenomenal athlete all the way around. So the, my better, uh, the reason I bring that example up is usually in support of, of, of how I teach progressions to clients, which is mm. the, my BA progression. First, it's be able. I want you to do the basics. I want you to do sagittal lifts, bilateral mm-hmm. lifts. They're fundamentally lay down these qualities that we need that are good for robustifying mm-hmm. our, our human. BA progresses to be athletic. And I have a real easy definition because athletic is such a general, non-well-defined term. It just means to me doing or, or organizing and controlling more things. So... If I'm deadlifting a kettlebell with two hands in a bilateral stance, and I go to a one-hand bilateral stance deadlift, that is more athletic because as soon as the bell moves to the ground, now I have to manage more lateral flexion and rotation. So there's more things to manage, more athletic. That's all my definition is. After athletic becomes be adaptable. Can you apply? Like, Can you go do something new? Can I set up your kettlebell swing in a slightly different stance and you're able to execute mm-hmm. it well or does it go to pieces because if not if it goes to pieces you're not adaptable like that that's the lowest level execution more is like you go take up tennis or pickleball and you don't blow an achilles or you don't you know you're able to do do fairly well um i always get a little bit of a giggle out of the minimalist crowd which is like you expect to be able to do more by doing less and I think that can work for a short period of time mm-hmm. when someone has to to develop a specific quality, but over a longer period of time, I don't think that's going to work well. And one of the things for, for me, maybe even for you, like both of us have spent, um, I think both of us would identify as a more elastic athlete than a strength athlete, but both of us have spent time building strength at one point. And directly during or after that, maybe we felt less elastic, less good. But I, I probably would argue that that experience to where we are now 
set us up for more success mm-hmm. later because we brought that one quality up. We came out of balance to build that one thing up, and then we came back to where we want to be, um, having a higher threshold of strength. Yeah, yeah, I, I will say for sure. My, I, I talk a lot about how I did lifting too much in my mid to late twenties and way too much in my early thirties, but I definitively in some of the high points or the high points of my high school athletic career, my college athletic career, lifting certainly helped me without question. And so it is just so much of a piece of balance and it's kind of fun almost to see. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy too, like how compressed my rib cages from all the bench presses for so many years, like doing like an athlete's test behind my back. I'm like, man, I, my rib cage is so much flatter than it used to be, but then it's fun to try to find a way you know, how do I get out of this? Like, it's like a challenge. It's like a new challenge. Like, it's like, well, how do I get back to where I was before? How do I feel back where I was before? And then, of course, yeah, like you said, too, I think the strength piece, um, something I've been playing around with myself is is seasonal. It was a podcast I did about this time last year, Christian Thibodeau, treating the winter as the time for more strength, like Rocky Four, And that was yep. one of the coolest things I've done in my training in the last five years, because otherwise I'd kind of I treat the whole year as kind of more elastic and speed and the things I like, but it's really cool to do the winter in something that pushes the envelope more to the strength side. And then you get to feel that show up in the spring. And by the time it's the summer, it's all right. It's sunshine. Let's sprint fast. You know, let's, let's do this. And it's just cool to see that operate seasonally as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, Clifton, how you, you mentioned the rhythm with the kettlebell, the dancing piece with the kettlebell. Um, how, like, how did you get into that? Just in the sense that I don't think, you know, I don't think we just one day say, yeah, I'm just going to start, you know, like, it's not like there's that much of that out there. You know, like I got into rhythmic movement because uh, Paul Cater down in uh, Monterey, uh, California, I went in to train with him and, and like all the sprint pieces, all the sprint warmups were, um, you know, to a rhythm, to a music, to a beat. And I was like, this is amazing. And then I started carrying that out into some of my work. So I'm curious what got you started on that rhythmic piece. You know, it's a, it's an interesting question. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, I know that when I went to school for kinesiology at San Diego State, I would train a certain way, which was a lot of heavy, heavier med balls and med ball throws, slams, tosses with my buddies. And a lot of it was this intuitive, this kind of feels like playing basketball without necessarily trying to be sport specific. But, you know, like when you train intuitively, you do the things that feel like it's going to have transference, whether it does or not is a huge arguable discussion. But we were doing that. I went to buy new equipment from Dick's Sporting Goods, Sports Chalet, actually, they're not even around anymore, Sports Chalet at Mission Valley Mall. And there was a GoFit 45 pound kettlebell. And I didn't know anything about it. But I was like, this looks interesting. Let me buy it. So I bought it and I started playing around with it. And at the beginning, I was like throwing it around tossing it, juggling it a little bit. I didn't have any formal education on the kettlebell, but I liked how you could hold it in different positions. So when I was like jumping, speed skaters, uh, quick run decelerations with the bell, you could jolt it down so you get this big impulse on the final step. And then I went and learned how to use it correctly. So in big quotation marks, how to use it correctly, right? It's just a piece of metal, man. Like however you want to use it, if it, if it has an outcome, that's correct. But I went and learned the correct way to do it and enjoyed the correct way to do it, but also kept my own stylistic. No, I also like these other things that I can do with this. And specifically with the rhythm and timing, 
is as you're moving this thing around, you have to dodge it, right? Like if it's coming at you, you know, the cue is you play chicken with your crotch, get your crotch out of the way. If you're switching hands side to side, that forces you to coil, rotate, move your pelvis over a femur will also get your knee out of the way. So you don't bash your knee. So it's a real world, you know, it sounds dangerous, but it's not if you, if you know how to progress it correctly, but there's real consequences. It becomes an actual task that you need to accomplish that if you don't accomplish right, it feels terrible or you fail. And that is different than, um, it's not quite different than a bench press or, or barbell. Like I, I don't want to sound like I'm negatively speaking mm-hmm. about bilateral lifts. They're a huge component of what I do with, with clients. Um, but they are not as rich from a reflexive, reactive, rhythmic, timing, sequencing, dare I say, athletic type of execution. And that's what I really enjoy about the kettlebell specifically. In fact, like one of our certs that we have, we talk about, you know, six qualities that we need as, as humans. And one of them is athleticism and a big piece. And this is actually relatively new in how I had to think about this was explaining what I mean when I say train athletic, because all I mean is give the opportunity to express athletic movement. And for most of my clients, again, gen pop, not athletes, they're not playing sports. They're not doing activities that require them to move quickly, to move in different directions, to change direction, to be reactive or reflexive. And so I want to create those opportunities. It could be as easy as push this sled fast. And then after they do that enough, now, now without the sled, run and do a ladder drill. That's that is more athletic than what most people are getting in the gym. So it doesn't mean go and do the craziest things you've ever seen. Like we're not trying to do a shuttle run on day one. For the upper body um, to, to add to the athleticism, lower body is real easy. Multi-direction, change of direction, up and down, jumps, hops, skips, move fast. Like it, that's it. If the upper body, it's a little harder to man- like define that. And, and the way that I like to define it is tool manipulation. Throw something, swing something. And that looks like clubs, maces, kettlebells, med balls, or like go join one of these sword fighting clubs. That sounds kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Dress in armor and have a big knights battle. Um, but I think, you know, what's unique to human is we manipulate tools yeah. and specific to like how we had to hunt and fight and survive. Like it was manipulate tools in different ways that develop a full body coordination and power expression from the lower body through the trunk into the out out of the hand and so that's how i like to define athleticism is uh multi-directional movement through the legs upper body and upper body is going to be tool manipulation yeah in some way i I feel like a way to summarize it tell me what you think about this but like the picture that comes to my head would be working on the railroad with the sledgehammer like bringing the hammer it's like oscillating moves to a rhythm cross body tool you know tool wielding work and it is it is interesting because i do think with the balance of things you know, again, maybe different with an athlete who's already doing a lot of these things in their sport. Like I think about like Michael Jordan a lot, like his training was like a lot of machines and like barbell benching and, you know, like he was already doing it all outside of it and was very good at it and yep. maybe had a lot less gaps to fill than other athletes who didn't have the movement potential. Um, but someone who's not doing a sport and, and, and I guess, and even so there's still layers too. You have the best athletes. Christian Thibodeau had said something about this where like the best athlete could do a very general thing 
and be able to just absorb it and then go play their sport and be amazing. A lot of people need more of a bridge. Like they need more bridges to really get that athleticism moving and working and going. And then I'm sure general population, it's almost all, <laughs> in some ways, it's probably almost all a bridge, right? I'm I just curious your take on that. Yeah. So with the gem pop, to your example, Michael Jordan or any, any high level athlete, they're on their field of play, depending on what they're playing, I guess, but they're going to have a lot of variability, a lot of different yeah. directions. A lot of those athletic qualities are being filled by what they do. So in the gym, give them the qualities that they don't build. And so a base level strength and conditioning program makes a ton of sense, right? Uh, one, you're managing their energy resources, their recovery resources. Um, you don't want to hurt them, certainly, like you're worried for your job. So I understand exactly why that would be done. And that's probably how I would train people that are still very, very active. When I was still playing basketball and tennis and doing some parkour and different things like this, then I would pro I, I know I had a less variable training program because I knew I was already getting it. And I just needed the easier, more uh, straightforward buckets to be filled. For the gen pop, they just don't get those things. And in, in healthy aging, your ability to remain elastic and powerful is important. Your ability to remain mobile is important. And now mobile, you're going to have to attack that both from a, a slow duration of mobility, flexibility drills. But there's also, you know, if it, you can't get into certain positions quickly, that's another expression of mobility. And you only do that if you practice it. Uh, that stretch reflex based around time sensitivity, how the brain recognizes the speed, the change of the tissue is different than when you move slowly. So you have to practice that specifically. Um, so with those, those general clients, that's why we think, I think that it's really important to create an athletic opportunity for them is the way that I've, I've chosen to do it. And people, they, they have this lens. They're like, you're just trying to do sports specificity. I'm like, no dog, like they don't even play sports. Mm -hmm. They can't be sports specific. They do no sports. I'm just giving them opportunity to be athletic. And that's it. I think it's a unique way to look at it. And it kind of throws people off because I, I haven't heard somebody say that in that way before. But um, I do think, you know, feeling athletic and enjoying the mm -hmm. challenge of here's a problem that you have to solve. And then being able to solve that problem is a, is a, is a good win for clients to have. The way we did it, I used to run, I used to have seven uh, facilities with about 300 members per facility. And we ran th three week blocks. We would do the same workout or excuse me, the same seven workouts for three weeks. And you would see people on week one. I would joke, I'd be like, you're going to, you're going to suck this week, right? 33% of what we do is going to be physically, uh, coordinatively challenging for you. And then on week two, you're slightly better at it. And on week three, you're feeling pretty good. And then on week four, it's a new thing and you suck again. But every three weeks they have this, they have these victories of now I can do this thing that I couldn't do before. And so regularly fitness people come in or, or general pop come in and they say, I can't do that. I'm not coordinated. And I'm just like, no, you haven't done that before. You haven't learned how to do it. We're going to learn how to do this. You're going to feel better about what you can do. And when they do that for a long enough period of time, you start to see them start to be explorative in other activities outside of the gym because you basically unlock this confidence that they have movement competence and they can do more things. You know, we, unfortunately, as, a, as an industry, I think sometimes treat people like they can't do anything and like, you know, you, you struggle with that. So we're going to do the basic and we're going to do the basic forever. And we'll let you like take it up an ounce every month forever. And that's 
boring. That dumbs it down for them. It dumbs down their movement potential. So I, I, I like this idea of uh, creating more opportunities, a better, a better vocabulary. People use that term, mm -hmm. you know, doing math is what I said earlier, but I think it's a huge missed opportunity for most people and where people go wrong on the other side of the spectrum is they throw too much crap at people right out of the gate. That's why I like the be able, be athletic, be adaptable. Like we're going to get there, but don't get caught and be able forever. Yeah. I, I like that. I like, um, even too, this is something I was going to ask you. I'm not sure if I'm framing this the same way, but I know you were on Rafe Kelly's podcast. And mm -hmm. one thing I learned, I was at his retreat two years ago. And one of the big things I took away from that was every movement you do or movement practice, maybe it's weightlifting, you know, you, you feel confidence, like you embody confidence by breaking PRs. If you do jujitsu, there's something else that your body takes on emotionally. Like there's an emotional, like, thing that goes with each movement practice and i think about like you mentioned it, like like it's in our blood to be athletic and that doesn't mean you have to be an all-star football player dodging players in the field it just means move like a human really yeah <laughs> and yeah. i i look you know i've been getting a huge kick out of um it's like uh it's in in brazil uh they the big trend there's like the mini trampolines and they do like these dance they're dancing on the trampolines <laughs> i don't know if you've seen those I was, oh, yeah. I was showing them, my daughter obsessively jumps on, we have an exercise trampoline and she obsessively jumps on it. She says she's thinking about TV shows and remaking them in her head. Like she jumps on it and then goes on the couch and jumps down. It's her routine, but I was showing the, uh, I showed her that video and I was like, can you do this? Like, I just thought it was, but it's, it's, it's funny because then I saw somebody, um, this is what I do at nine o'clock at night, Cliff, and I go on the on Instagram and I'm like, what is, what, what strange and interesting, I shouldn't even say strange. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it, but like, someone then on peloton is very popular because they're dancing while they're doing the peloton and it's almost like it's in it's wired in us to want rhythm to want uh, you you think about like a personal training session that personal trainers complain about which is the standard exercises and then you talk to the client for however long and a lot of a lot of complaining about their day or something it's yeah. almost like because the exercises is itself is not stimulating like if i think i feel like i mean you tell me you tell me because i i don't most of my clients are not gen pop um but it seems like if the training is stimulating, there's less room for that thing that we that trainers complain about oftentimes. I'm I'm just curious what your take is on that. I think so, 100. Um, percent I think that having that enjoyable, exciting, um, new thing, and, you know, the fitness world, the SNC world. I think we self-select a little bit more for the archetype of client that enjoys doing the same thing and seeing measurable mm -hmm. progress from a quantitative standpoint week to week. And because we self-select to do that, we hold it to a higher degree of importance. And so we dismiss the clients that don't have that as their degree of importance as much. And so we try to force feed what we like on them. And you know, we have to understand that maybe half, I don't know what the percentages are be, right? But a certain percentage of people really enjoy doing the same thing week to week for a period of time. And they will go to Bikram yoga because it's the same postures every single week in the same order for the same amount of reps for 90 minutes. And it'll smell like dank, dirty carpet, right? But they enjoy that repetition versus the client that's like, are we seriously doing two sets of the same exercise, right? Th those are the two extreme ends and people live on the spectrum. So I always encourage people to have a conversation. I, my personal favorite is whatever the need of that that person is do that for three to six to 12 weeks, right? Get better at that. And then the second half of the workout, change it up, like subtle variation. Um, 
give them an opportunity to learn slight different, execute the lateral lunge different every single week, load it different, like load it with bands, load it with a cable, load it with a kettlebell, load it with a dumbbell, load it with a barbell. Like that is enough athleticism or adaptability to me is like, uh, it doesn't have to be this grandiose. Okay. Now we're doing a side sit, uh, like a, a side flip. You know, that that's the progression, right? That's mm-hmm. what people, that, that almost feels like what people think I'm saying, or anybody in the movement realm, they're like, no, keep it simple. Cause they can't do it. And I think that people can do more than, than what we give them credit for oftentimes. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the, yeah. How do you start? Um, you had mentioned this a few minutes ago, the idea of people who like, they only are taught or programmed to do things one way and then asking them to do it a different way. Uh, something I've been working through is the ampli- amplification of error technique, where it's a motor learning thing, where you actually tell them to do it the wrong way <laughs> and feel how this is wrong, and then go back to the right way, and now you feel what changed, which I've absolutely loved doing. Like, it's, it's, cause it's also so, like, just, it seems backwards, but it's also amazing at the same time. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious... Um, uh, I was going to say how you go about starting to infuse variability, like, you know, exploring it, asking them to do di- like, just curious um, with that. So one, I just wrote down amplification of error because I do that in every certification because oh, it's nice. really, it's really effective. I just didn't know it had a term. <laughs> um, I, I say I make you feel it bad. So when I make you feel it good, I seem like a good coach. Um, the, okay. So how do we increase variability? I think that the tool that you pick is an easy way to increase variability. Your example of running on the rocks is right there. Instead of running on the road, run on the rocks. Boom. Your variability is immediately increased, right? Because now, is that a constraint-based coaching? I think so, right? And to me, like a moving kettlebell, a moving or a water-filled sandbag, a Mm water-filled ball, a a sandbag of any type, even if you're new with the landmine, the way that the landmine falls with an angle mm-hmm. down and it can move side to side, it means it's less predictable yeah. for how it's going to work, especially mm-hmm. when you're new to it. And as long as we understand, like when we when we add these pieces of variability, the goal in and of itself is not necessarily big one rms or huge performance metrics it's the ability to control and make that new task that new drill um, look easy look effortless um, in in a session or a couple of sessions that's the benefit there Um, i i like to i like to think that the ability to learn new things is a trainable quality in and of itself but it means practicing more new things not less things so I think I got a little tangential there uh, on the on the answer to that question, but that's how uh, that's how I introduce variability is just tool selection. I'm like, hey, let's let's make this reflexive because when you swing this around, you've got no choice. And from that, using this the standpoint of be able, be athletic, be adaptable, like one of the, the sub definitions is points of contact. So in be able, it's two static points of contact in a nice base of support. In be athletic, it's going to be a stagger stance of some type where mm. your base of support is challenged. In be adaptable, it means my points of contact are moving during the drill. So that's where I start taking steps with the kettlebell. Mm. And so as the kettlebell is coming down, now I have to have the rhythm and the timing to get my feet down, make sure that my weight is distributed over those points of co- uh, contact adequately so that I can absorb the moving load and then re-fire it in whichever direction I've been choosing to fire it. And 
you know, you're going to step in a different position every freaking time. So immediately you have more variability and, and, and you know, there's a, a little subset discussion, conversation, argument that some people have that variety and variability are two totally different things. I don't think that's the case. I think there's an overlap at some point within exercise, right? You'll have somebody say a back squat and a front squat. There's no variability between the two. It's just two varieties and the variability only lives within each. And I'm like, yeah, I, I understand that sentiment, but I think there's like a little bit of mm -hmm. uh, overlap between the two. I don't know how to define it. I'm not as smart as, as Rob Gray or anybody else that's doing this stuff, but like my context of the kettlebell, if I'm doing a kettlebell clean, my arm is relatively the same, no matter what stance I'm in. So it, there's variability of the the clean action while the stance is variation. I don't know. Like, I don't actually care. It's just doing shit differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. I love the progression, too, from as you go from the bilateral to stagger to walking and, and, and how that it's so simple, too. And I, I was going to say, I really I like that you had, you know, just teaching people to do it wrong, feel that, but also variability. And I've thought before about like. I, and, you know, again, back to like, you know, high schoolers squatting. Yes, you need to coach them and tell them things. But if it's something else, I always thought about like even like running. What if I taught someone running without ever saying what to do? It was only variability, running on different trails and surfaces, hills, and then what not to do and feel what not to do. <laughs> you know, and, and I think it'd be interesting what we would learn as coaches too taking that approach you, you know i just think there's so much there because just seeing how the human adapts on their own without putting anything to do in it's all but it's almost like a lot of um it's a lot of output without as much input or I, i'm not sure of how to describe that but um no that, make, that makes sense i actually there's a couple instances over i just taught in austin over the weekend and there's a couple instances during the course where i'm like in this half kneeling windmill i don't actually care where you put your foot, unless you put it too far in this direction. So I want you to put your foot too far in this direction and feel how it feels. See how you all basically fall over and get put in a bad position. So as long as you're to the right of that in this setup or within your shin, it was a half kneeling windmill, 90, 90 pointing from your knees. If your up leg foot is in front of your other knee, then you're going to pitch forward. You you lack the ability based on your points of contact to distribute your hip shift back enough to succeed at the task. And so there's only one there's one way to do it wrong, but every other way is acceptable. It just stretches the tissues differently, and that's a different teaching model that we have than most places. Like wherever your malleolus is, that's where you put your heel, and it's 17.38 inches away from that, uh, and that's the only right way you can do it. Anything else is worthless, which is just a worthless mm -hmm. advice because it's factually like it's so objectively incorrect to say that this is the one way that you can do this no that might be the, the way that that person's body can move the most load but it is certainly not the only way that it can be done safely or effectively or generate some sort of adaptation and then so we that's almost uh, it was interesting you saying this because i hadn't thought of it in that way the amplification of error or, or it most a lot of the cert is me showing you, you can do it a bunch of ways. These are the ways definitely don't do it because this is where like, you get in bad positions and you can't put up as much weight or it puts you in a position to potentially get hurt. But everything else is just you selecting what tissues you're biasing. 
Yeah, it's it is interesting to go about. Yeah, the thought of like if the movement if you're falling over if the movement doesn't feel good, like there is a learning process to that too, and let people get in on that. Like there's yeah. there's something I think that's really helpful there. Um, I was going to ask you with the kettlebell. So the kettlebell and athletic, I, I feel like in athletic performance, I, you had mentioned you're very upfront working with general pop. But I do think even in athletic performance, like there's always, oh, there's often a lot of gaps to fill. And I think that like David Weck talks about the coiling a lot or just like rotation, working transverse plane. I, I know I've seen you do it. I know there's a lot of things you can do working rotationally with a kettlebell. I'm curious if you have any favorite like rotational pieces, like you mentioned even walking with the kettlebell that any rotational pieces that you feel like could be applicable to pretty much anybody who's seeking more of that athletic quality, be it an athlete or a general population. I think the easiest ones to get after, right? So that a general kettlebell swing is going to be with two feet, toes forward-ish, two hands, and it's just pure sagittal, right? Um, I like to just go into a kickstand stance, and then you've got two options there. You've got your contralateral arm with the kettlebell in it. So if your right leg is forward, the bell is in your left hand. Traditionally, kettlebells, they'll teach you on the backswing, keep your shoulders, your sternum, your belly button pointing straight ahead, and you're straight ahead the whole time. They're effectively reducing the amount of rotation that they're allowing to happen. Well, I actually would just want to increase it. So I go thumb, internally rotate, thumb to bum on the backswing. That internal rotation will start to pull your scap around in protraction a little bit. That'll start to flex the upper back a little bit. That flexion of the upper back a little bit plays into a little bit more rotation towards the front leg so as soon as i do that from my pinky on the hand that i'm holding the kettlebell with down the whole backside, across the shoulder thoracolumbar junction down through the glute through the hamstring all the way to the bottom of the foot that entire posterior sling if you're in the slings is on stretch all has to coordinate to shorten and create the uh firing the concentric action moving up we look at it even further like hey i'm as i do that Yes, I'm rotating through the T-spine, but that's connected to my lower back, which is connected to my pelvis. So even though we can, you know, separate our rotation, it's all going to rotate together to some degree. That helps me pull that left hip forward. So I'm now rotating my pelvis over my femur. So I'm getting rotation as a global. I'm getting it in the T-spine. I'm also getting it at the local um, hip of the working leg as well. So contralateral kickstand swings with the rotation bias, I think is really, really a great way to go. I do coach people to keep their eyes forward so that they are not, if they turn their head, they will fall if they're not really good with their balance. I don't, I like to imagine they're watching the offense in front of them, give them some sort of thing, a progression from that, because when you're on the contralateral side, it's easier to keep your balance. A progression is to go ipsilateral side. So that would be if my right leg is forward, now I'm swinging with my right hand. And my pinky is leading back on the backswing. But as I, as I move that load lateral in my points of contact, it wants to pull me out. And so reflexively, what should happen is my foot should pronate. It should lengthen into the big toe, which means that my knee should drift inward, not drift, but move adduct over the big toe, which then basically has me somewhat coiling and rotated over that base of support. I get my belly button, sternum, nose, chin over my knee, which is over my toe. Got this nice co-contraction happening around that hip. As I come up, I'm actually going to turn my hips to my left, so away from where they were loaded. So now I've got a longer position in the in the flex loaded position and a shorter externally rotated position on the finish. 
but just going into a, a, a static staggered or kickstand stance, but changing how I swing is a, is a easy progression option right there. Um, one more for you is to swing in a lateral split stance. So if I'm still bending my right leg, my left hand thumb to bum still leading is going to swing forward and out 45 degrees to my left on the back swing. I go through the middle, uh, through in the top of the triangle between the knees and the crotch. So high to the crotch, thumb to bum, my right foot, which is the working leg, those toes and knees are forward. My chest is pointing over the knees. So I'm, I got that same pelvic rotating over the femur, which is adducted internally rotated. So I got length in the back hip. Then as I explode, I'm going to turn everything to my left, trying to externally rotate. This just looks like, and it feels very much like change in direction as a defensive slide on the basketball court. Again, I'm not trying to recreate a defensive slide. I'm trying to just expose more rotational challenges to the hips specifically in this version. And so those, those three options right there, uh, they're fresh in my mind because over the weekend, I had a bunch of kettlebell gurus and like people that are really awesome people that had, had that knew it one way and they're like this is blowing my mind i've never mm -hmm. felt my ass like this i've never yeah. felt my adductors in this way i'm like yeah it's because you're not training them like the three-dimensional muscle that they are yes so yeah. rotate them around let them move <laughs> free those hips yeah I, I love that i i think that's doing stuff like that i feel you know regardless of the population you're working with especially for people whose foundation is maybe more rooted in and, and like we said, there, it's good to have the physical strength developed from the basic lifts, the basic bilateral lifts. But I think you can get so far into that that you forget just how much that, like what you were just mentioning, just how much that can blow up your glutes and adductors. And those are the muscles too where, you know, it's kind of funny. I remember when I was younger, uh, when I had done good lifting, but I hadn't gotten carried away. I hadn't gotten so far, you know, into the powerlifting rabbit hole. When I would sprint, I would actually feel it more in my adductors. And at the time, I kind of thought that was a bad thing. But I mean, that's when I was, I was high jumping seven feet, you know, like I was super bouncy that like everything was, was very good from an athletic elastic movement standpoint. And then the more down the lifting rabbit hole I got, I actually stopped feeling the stuff, um, a lot of the sprints in my adductors so much. And mm -hmm. I actually started getting adductor problems. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's just good to have those movements that it's like, oh, this is what this is supposed to feel like. Because, it, and it winds up, it's like, you know, I, I hate to overuse spiral or, you know, whatever, diagonal, the glutes diagonal, but it's like, you have to have a hip shift. It's, it's kind of the, the trick almost in the sense, like we talked about the strength training is all the way on the general side, very coached up, but you have to have almost a little bit of, I would call it like almost uncertainty, like in that parkour example, like you have to take a jump and it's almost like there is that moment when the bell's in the air that you can't control everything, but that is the key to reflexively loading up the body or letting the body load to its full potential is you actually have to let go for a minute and let the body yep. work like it's supposed to. And the weight is like an add on to that. And yes, yeah. I, I, I'll go try that. I'll do a few of those after our conversation. Here. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I appreciate you mentioning those. The, uh, you know, I, I had a thought when you were talking about the S and C right there with, uh, if we go too far down those bilateral lifts, I wonder, and I just don't know if the answer is if we're doing all bilateral lifts with an external rotation bias with, mm -hmm. with the general cueing that is done in a power lifting standpoint, at what point does that giant neurological input that we're training again and again and again, drown out our normal athletic mm -hmm. potential? If you're playing sport, then you probably hold on to your sporting qualities pretty well. But okay. if you're not at what, at some point that's going to become your primary 
strategy to do all the things that you do. And I see it all the time at my certs because I mostly have fitness people coming to my certs and they're mostly following the general shoulders back and down, excellent rotated, like extension mm -hmm. bias, everything. And that's how they try to do everything. And so when I have them speed skate, they're, they have their toes turned out and their knees going wide. And they're like, I don't know why I can't go side to side. I do. I do know why, because you're in a terrible position to accomplish that task. Yeah. It's kind of like to what you're talking about makes me think about CrossFitters running, which I am blown away by how good the top CrossFitters are at covering the distance and the time they do. But it's just so interesting to watch what they're running, te um, how they self-organize their running technique in light of everything being crazy extension biased, you know, they're, oh, yeah. but um, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting to watch. I would bet you, yeah, maybe for people uh, such as them, I don't know if they're, you know, you mentioned the primary stimulus, their primary stimulus is so, their sport is extension by, you know, bilateral sagittal plane. So they'd have to do an awful lot of those swings to probably oh. get their, change their pattern to the point where they could run in a way that was more, you know, typical and efficient. Um, it's kind of an interesting thought experiment, but I, I, I get you. Cause I, yeah, I started to change my, my body's shape changed and my muscle layout changed in my late twenties and early thirties. And it's actually been a lot of fun getting it back. But I, I also, I really like the term or the phrase, um, a man never steps in the same river twice because he isn't the same man and it's not the same river. And I like thinking about this is the first time I've done this workout with my body the way it is today, you know? Because it's, it's kind of a cool way to think about that. Because, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't have the same body shape, structure, muscle layout that I did tissue quality than I did when I was 21. But it's like, it's kind of a cool present moment thing. I, I think about that sometimes. Maybe it's just to deal with, you know, my, <laughs> the effect of uh, six or seven years of way, probably beyond uh, not playing enough sports and focusing primarily on the big lifts, which for me changed my movement, st you know, style over time. But it's been fun to get it back. And I also like thinking about that. So. For sure. So, talking about a lot of the the kettlebell type work, and you had mentioned you work with Jim Pop, but I, I do have to ask. Um, okay, if you were working with an athletic group, an athletic team, they're playing their sport. Um, any thoughts on what you would keep from what you're doing with the Gen Pop group? What you might not? Um, how would you approach that versus your typical populations? So, I would definitely still keep in a lot of the kettlebell movements that we that we utilize, and the reason is. If we agree that loading a squat pattern can help with jumping because it's a similar position, then why wouldn't loading similar positions that athletes get into potentially help them with those things? So sidestep or side shuffles in an athlete, if I load that with a kettlebell, I get the fast eccentric with the quick amortization phase or quick turnaround, whatever we want, what term we want to use that should have some carryover to what they do on the field of sport. We're not exactly trying to, to, to load it the same way, but I do think there's value in getting an eccentric stimulus to some of these positions that they don't get eccentrically loaded overload all that often. Um, additionally, it just gives them a more general ability to express power out of different positions that they're going to find themselves on the field. So, even if it's if it was just in the off season, right? Like maybe not during the season because they're already loading it aggressively. Um, however, you want to cut that up. But I think that the 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 pushback on sport specificity has good rationale, but sometimes the pushback for something can go too far itself, right? So in this way, 
I'm not going to take a loaded basketball and shoot free throws because that's silly. That's going to screw with the motor pattern. But general movements like side to side movement or rotation. Yeah, I can load that up and I don't think it's going to screw with their ability to move their body on the court. It's just going to give them that same type of overload and potential um, robustifying mm-hmm. of those positions. And the kettlebell for athletes specifically, and I, and I have a bias towards basketball and volleyball. Um, a lot of times they don't really want to, they don't, heavy ass weights doesn't mm-hmm. resonate with them. And if we're thinking about overload, we're thinking about intensity and force. So we can drive intensity and force in other ways than just max weight. And so we can actually get a higher force if we accelerate that bell moving down quickly. And if we do that in these interesting positions, well, it actually makes more sense to do in these angulizations. That's a word I use, angulations of the kettlebell backswing that you can't reproduce with traditional loading. And so now all of a sudden we're able to get these bigger forces of absorption and redistribution of of force. Um, unique with the kettlebell that we otherwise wouldn't. So I would absolutely still be using it with cl- with with athletes. The other big anecdotal piece is every ex athlete or athlete that trains with kettlebells seems to like it mm-hmm. because it feels athletic. Yes, yeah, and and so their buy in. I mean, I, I hear so many S and C coaches talk about athletes not having a lot of buy in in the weight room. I'm like, well, here's this tool that probably could improve their buy in. Because you don't even have to go heavy. Like if you're mm-hmm. using the 25 to 35 pounds with enough downward movement speed, that thing is going to hit on that impulse with quite a bit of force that you have to overcome. And that's all we're really trying to do anyway. Um, so I, I would absolutely be very eager to utilize it with with teams. And I think that with athletes, I just think that, you know, depending on what your uh, <laughs> risk tolerance is and and bucking the system a little bit. Um, it might be very interesting for people to use. Yeah. I think what you said there, like what the athletes resonate with, because yeah, some athletes like a football player who loves lifting weights might resonate with like a high intensity training, you know, taking sets deep and getting a pump and all that. And a lot of athletes might, but a lot of athletes who sport basketball sport is rhythm. Like how easy is it to tie that to uh, something that happens with a kettlebell or anything else that has a, a piece of rhythm to it or those types of motions. And I think, I like what you said. It's like a gateway, really. It's like for someone who doesn't really love like the heavier lifting, like just using that as a gateway and seeing how far they want to go with it, how far it fits with them. I think there's a lot to that. So, um, yeah. th- doing just things that are athletic, like, <laughs> and, and uh, it's almost like in some way it's like sport with weights. There is that component that is all the way general that's there, but it's um, it, it's also interesting to think, yeah, it's just interesting to think about the spectrum of all these activities and which ones do we, ab- which buckets do we absolutely need to do? And then which things resonate with the athlete? I think it's kind of a rotating equation a little bit, but I, I definitely dig the, yeah, this feels athletic. Like I think, yeah, anyone, like you said, anyone who's done sport can really dig that and resonate with that. Sometimes it's just that simple, right? Oh, that felt mm-hmm. athletic. That's yeah. like my favorite thing. Every single cert, I get one or two people that they do this little step up snatch or between the legs, handoff, kettlebell thing. And they go, damn, I feel athletic. And like I catch <laughs> them out of their side of their mouth saying it without not a not me asking for that feedback. It's just like this authentic moment of like, kind of feel cool right now, yeah. like doing this fast thing. And that's pretty cool. You said something a second ago, um, sport with weights. Um, and it's a point that I think is important is that I use this term arbitrary standards and arbitrary definitions quite a bit this weekend. I don't know why it just is new to me, but um, what we 
consider sport is fairly arbitrary. So people play around with kettlebells and they're doing doofus training, right? That's the joke that I make about myself. It's like dancing with bells is doofus, it's functional uh, loser in the SNC world. Doing the same lifts with a barbell, you're a serious athlete. You are a sport. Mm-hmm. I'm like, there's a disconnect here. Like if we had sanctioned competitions, and, and there are sanctioned competitions with kettlebells, right? Snatch, clean and jerk, push press, but not windmill, not step up snatches. Okay, so do I need to start a competition with that for people to take it serious? Um, for a while, the X Games weren't sports. They were like silly hobbies that children did. Now they're serious athletes. Like any physical expression, if it m- is meaningful to the individual, it's the same. Mm-hmm. Like your desire to want to be uh, the, my best, my, my favorite example is people that are hobby 5K runners trying to act as though they are holier than thou compared to somebody that is uh, swinging around kettlebell or playing with a mace bell or mm-hmm. playing with a club bell or whatever. It's like, no, I do a real sport. I'm a very mediocre runner. <laughs> what how what you have no legs to stand on here yeah someone should definitely get a kettlebell windmill comp that should be a thing it needs to be as big (laughs) as everything else (laughs) as big as crossfit kettlebell windmill competition old-time strongman right there yeah yeah and find out interesting things to lift with the kettlebell windmill to you know so people can note (laughs) yeah i love that anyways uh Cliff, great talking to you today. Uh, where can people find more about you, your certifications? Uh, if they want to learn more about what you're doing, uh, let us know. So, here. mostly on Instagram, it's uh, at Clifton Harsky. And then the company that I run is called the Pain Free Performance Specialist Certification. It's a mouthful or PPSC, and that's at Pain Free Training. And then our kettlebell cert, which is an offshoot or a secondary offer from that company, is called Functional Kettlebell Training. That's at Functional Kettlebell Training. Awesome. Um, well, hey, thank you so much for your time on the show again. I uh, appreciate it and um, appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. I appreciate you listening. If you enjoy what we're doing with this podcast, you can help us out by leaving a rating or review for the show on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, whatever you are listening to this on. I'd absolutely appreciate it. I will see you next week with another great guest.